Yeah, for the rest of you who are here this morning, I am going to ask you to open your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, and uh, we'll wait for those to come on back down to us, but we are going to begin this morning. Uh, open your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke chapter 13, and I'm going to say that one more time. Open your Bibles, okay? So either a Luddite version, the printed version, and if you don't have one, uh, we have some on the table at the back there, brand new Bibles, uh, paperback versions, albeit, but if you don't have a Bible, you could grab one of those, and if you don't have one literally, you could take it as a gift from us. We would love you to have that. Chapter 13 is where we're going to be this morning. Um, and we've been back in Luke, and I, I'm really encouraged to be back in the Gospel of Luke. We've been going through it on and off for a period of almost a year and a half. We've taken some breaks over Christmas and Easter and over the summer to look at other areas and other things. And uh, so I'm following on from uh, Rudy's start back into the Gospel of Luke last Sunday, where he did an awesome job on an equally challenging passage of Luke, of the Gospel, of the Bible. Uh, and he gave a little bit of a, a recap of where we're at. I'd like to do the same thing, but from a slightly different perspective to set our minds uh, related to the context of where we're at following chapter 12 into chapter 13 uh, so that today's text is understood in its context. So I believe it was back in June uh, that we began chapter 12. And I remember at that time when we, we got into chapter 12, I remember saying to you there were two things about this chapter that were uh, a big deal, in my opinion. One was a big deal, one a lesser deal. The lesser deal I'll mention first is that that chapter had a tremendous impact on my life 25 years ago when I was still a businessman, and it really racked my heart <laughs> about what I was giving myself to. And so I also told you, though, chapter 12 is a pivot. It's, it's a change in the gospel where Jesus is primarily gone from being the awkward dinner guest in the end of chapter 11, which he was in this Pharisee's home, and, and preaching to crowds of people. Beginning in chapter 12 all the way to chapter 19, he changes his focus primarily. Occasionally, he will speak to the crowds, but primarily to his disciples, to those who are following him to the 12. And his reasons are really, really clear. Uh, he realizes that he's within 14 months of the cross, and, and he wants them to be strong in their faith and not fall away. So he really wants to encourage them, strengthen them, and bless them. But he also knows something they don't. <laughs> There's a lot of things he knows that they don't still to this day, I would think. Um, and that is this. He's going to die be buried, rise again, and then leave the ministry of the church to them. He needs to prepare them. And so that's what happens between the beginning of chapter 12 to the end of chapter 19 primarily is his change of focus to his disciples. Another point that I think is pretty important to make and helpful, I think, for today is this. As most of you know, I think it was the end of August, it was, that I did a two-part series called The Bible and made the note at that time that we are a Bible-teaching and a Bible-believing church. And that's just what we are. And, and how do we do that? Well, we go through books of the Bible, verse by verse. It's the best way to learn God's Word, we believe. And so it's, it's, a, it's a great thing to do. But for me as a pastor, i got to tell you that it's, it's, it's both the easier way to go and the harder way, okay? The easier way because I don't have to figure out where we're going to go next Sunday right? I don't have to go home and go, oh, okay, now what do we need to preach on next Sunday? What do these kids, these, 
I'm older than most of you. What, what do they need, right? What do they want to hear? And, and, well, not what do they want to hear. Okay, what do they need? I don't have to do that. I, I know where we're going to go. So it's easier from that perspective, and that's a good thing. But it's also easier from the perspective of theologically and context-wise knowing where we're going. So from a preparation perspective, I've already been reading ahead several chapters, rereading the Gospel of Luke a few times, even in preparation for this message. So it's easier in the sense that, you know, I'm, I, I get the flow, I can, I can prepare the message. It's, it's easier to know that rather than kind of coming to a, pack, a passage fresh and having to get all the theology and the history and the context, okay? But it's harder for this reason. Can't avoid texts like today. I did a little search, a Google search. I tend to do that from time to time about various things. And sure enough, I went out searching for sermons on Luke chapter 13, verses 1 to 5. Not many. <laughs> it's not many sermons on this past passage. Go figure. It's hard. If you were just week to week figuring out what do people need or what do they want, this is probably not one you would pick. So it's a harder thing for that reason, but I think it's, it's also incredibly important that we do this. Rudy made a great point last week that I want to I build on and, and walk on and come uh, further on, and that is, is that, you know, sometimes when we look at the harder teachings of Jesus, it, it, it kind of pushes up against our perspective of who he is, right? I mean, most of us want to see Jesus as this, you know, this really mild-mannered, olive-skinned, uh, you know, peasant uh, guy who just wanted to preach the love of God for God so loved, right? And, and he is that guy, but then we come to texts like this and the one that Rudy preached on last week, and we're like, that's Jesus too? Uh-huh. But there's also, obviously, as we saw last week, and I hope we will again today, there is a beautiful thing to see in Jesus. He doesn't teach these things because he's being judgmental or he wants to threaten us. He's teaching these things because, A, they're true, and B, he really does love us. And that's why the truth is so important. So I want to read the text for you, Luke chapter 13, 1 to 5, as we normally do, and then I want to pray before we dive in. So read along with me, would you? Luke records these words. There were some present at that time, at that very time, who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he, Jesus, answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will also likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will likewise perish. We need to pray. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you again for this time to be here today. Lord Jesus, thank you for preaching this sermon. This is your sermon that you preached on that day in that place. And I thank you so much for preaching this really good news. Holy Spirit, I pray that you the one who uh, inspired Luke and, and those who were there to record the events of that day. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would speak to our hearts today, all of our hearts today, 
those who believe and those who do not. I pray that you would open our hearts, cut us to the heart if necessary, so that we might believe. And I pray these things in Jesus' worthy name. Amen. So your sermon title and outline for today is this, Change and Live. I hope to show you three things. Number one, the problem of change. Not with change, of change. The problem with tragedies. And then thirdly, Jesus changes everything. So number one, the problem of change. Again, been Googling it a lot this week, the last couple of weeks, this word change, right? Uh, it's an important word. It's an interesting concept. So let me begin as I like to do often, and we like to do, by asking some questions. Do any of you here today believe there is something in your life that you need to change, right? Is there anything about who you are that some key areas of your life, like your character, your personality, your lifestyle, your work, your career, your relationships, any area of life where you need to change? Okay, I got my hand up. Okay, good. Good, it's good. That's what I was hoping for, that some of us would be honest with ourselves and say, of course, oh yeah, there, there are many things that I would like to see about myself changed. There are many things that need to change. I've always, I heard one preacher say this many years ago that, you know, if you don't uh, know exactly what it is that you need to do to change, ask your spouse. Like, it's going to be really simple. Ask your best friend. Not the one that tells you you're wonderful all the time, but the one that'll tell you the truth. Right? Ask them what they think. So, but here, here's another, I mean, I, I think for, for me, for you, I think working on change is just, it's something that we've come to do, we all know we need to do it, but here's the next question, follow-up question is this, why do you, why do I even think that? I mean, if Darwinian evolution is true, and everything is chance, and everything just chains is randomly, and we have no control over it, what is, why do we even think these things? Why do we even have this thought in our minds that we need to change? That there, there is something better that we could be? Why do we even think that? Well, if you'll remember, uh, several weeks ago, I, I asked a similar question that taught us a few things. And the question was, who are you? I think it's a lot like that question that we asked. Who are you? And we talked about the fact that literally, when you and I are born, we come into this world if, if you think about it, honestly, not having a clue who we are. Now, obviously, when you're a toddler, an infant, you're like, <laughs> you have no idea who you are, right? Your parents are hoping you will turn into something, but we, we have no idea who we really, we spend most of our lives trying to what? Find ourselves, right? We go on these journeys. We, we also discovered in that message about who we are that the truth is we really don't know who we are, we're trying to find throughout our whole lives, sometimes into our 50s, 60s, even till the day we die, our true identity. We're trying to figure it out. So thankfully, we also learned this, there is someone who knows <laughs> exactly who you are, not only as male and female, but as a person. And, and, and the person who he originally created humanity to be and the individual person, he wants to transform you into being. So we learned that. So you and I can spend our whole lives trying to figure out that for ourselves, self-identifying, allowing others to define who we are. 
or we can go to the one who created us in his image, right? So that's why we go to the Word of God, and that's where we learn about who we are, created in his image. So this morning, I, I want to suggest to you that we have kind of the same issue or problem of change or with change. We all somehow know innately in our souls, in our being, if it's not because our parents have told us or our spouse or our best friends have told us, we need to change, we know it's true. We, we seek it, we know it. And yet the reality is, I, I, I think we need to understand is, we don't honestly know where that impetus has come from. I hope we will see it today. But secondly, that's because we don't even know why we need to change or quite frankly, how or ultimately what into. We look to the world around us to, to give us insight into what it would be, look like to be a, a superhuman, a, a really good human, a human that will flourish. So most of us go through life having this nagging desire to change. And so what do we do? Well, we look to self-help, to motivation, to gurus, to authors, to books, uh, seminars, more and more knowledge. We keep going to university, learning that we knew less than when we started, you know, if we're humble at least. And we keep trying to find out how do we change? How do we become better? So again, I, I think for most of us, the idea of change is something that we know we need to do. It's appealing and important to us. And so the next question I have for you is an important question. How's it working for you? I can almost guarantee you that if I was talking to some people closer to my age, okay? So late 40s, 50s, 60s, they'd be going, so-so. Because -so. <laughs> there's so many things we've tried to change over the years on our own, in our own strength. It's been challenging. See, I don't know about you personally, but in my life, I have spent many, many years going down the positive mental attitude, PMA, right? The self-help motivational route. Uh, I have tried a lot of things, whether it's physical, like athletically, uh, studying, theologically. I I've done just everything I can to, to try to, you know, find something that will change who I am, change my character so my wife will really be happy, right? No, but, but to change. And the reality is, is that all those things that I've been going through, I don't know if it's true for you, but sometimes I feel like they're just not that dramatic or lasting. The change doesn't seem to stick. I remember getting into my 30s and 40s and thinking, actually, you know what? I'm doing pretty good. <laughs> I've changed a little here. I've changed a little over there. You know, even my wife acknowledges that. And you can get to the point in your 30s and 40s striving to change, thinking I've done pretty well, and then all of a sudden a switch team seems to flip. And it's no longer the focus being on me, on ourselves that needs to be to change, but those people out there, the world needs to change. And if those people, these other people, my spouse, my friends, the world would change, then it would be better for all of us, right? And so we, we, uh, we, we buy into the idea that a lot of corporate and other organizations' mission statements essentially say that their purpose and mission is to what? Change the world, right? That was one of the early mission statements of Apple computers. Well, they did pretty good, but they didn't change the world, did they? For you PC users. Yeah. 
But that's the mission statement, so we can buy into that. It's attractive. I can align myself with a group that has this great goal of making the kind of changes I think would make our world better for everyone, me included. Friends, we need to be really careful here. It doesn't take long heading down that road before you and I come to believe that we are not the ones living in glass houses. Those people are. And we can align ourselves with these things to thinking that those who do not agree with us, with our political, with our social, or even our spiritual religious values are the ones who need to change. And the world then would be a much better place to live in if they would. That kind of thinking, and to that kind of thinking, Jesus says twice in this passage. Twice Jesus says these words. No, <laughs> I tell you, but unless you repent, you also and likewise will perish. We'll come back to this in a second, but I've skipped over two very brief passages from where Rudy ended last week, which is not something we do, but I'm just going to highlight them because they lead into the context of today and point them out to you. Um, they're really important passages on one level, but I think what they, they tell us is this. They, they essentially tell us, and you can see the pattern, Rudy kind of picked up on it last week, that Jesus is kind of getting to a point in his ministry where, again, 14 months from now, he's going to die on the cross. He knows it's coming. It's not a surprise to him. And maybe a little bit, Jesus is getting a little impatient, you know, that with people not really trusting what he's saying, not believing the miracles of who he is, and he's getting maybe a little bit impatient, not so much out of frustration with people, but he's getting a little impatient because he, he wants to get to the cross, get it done, so salvation can come to this world, so people can be truly healed and forgiven of their sins, and so they can receive the Holy Spirit, and now we can get on with things, and these people can be healed, and so he's becoming a little bit impatient and anxious for them and for us. So in the first short passage in 1254 to 56, we hear Jesus saying essentially this. He's saying, look at, guys, you, you can put your finger in the air and you can tell what the weather's gonna be like tomorrow, right? You, you can look at the sky and you can know that it's gonna be a sailor's delight, it's gonna be a lovely day. Or you can feel this, the wind coming down from the north, from uh, the, the Lillooet area in the summer in Squamish, and you know it's gonna get hot. And in that short passage, Jesus is essentially saying, look at, in your own thinking and human intellect, you can understand that and you can know what's going to happen tomorrow. But you've been looking at all the miracles, all the things that I've done, all the prophecies about him, me, and you're what? Asking for more signs? That's the first passage. But then in verses 57 to 59... He calls them out for, look at this, not judging, that's an important word because we'll be talking about that in our text from today, but not judging what is right. Even in that day, and it's really amplified in our day today, people were calling what was wrong right and what is right wrong. Anybody seen that happening in our world today? Right? And he calls them out for that, and basically he says this, listen, and this is really, really important to our text today, he says this. Listen, before you go to your grave, I'm paraphrasing, before the final judge, and you appear before that final judge, you better have settled your affairs with him. 
because when you get there on that day and at that time, it's too late. Jesus. These are actually words of love. So now we look at our passage for today. And that I I hope to show you that there's this problem of change. How do we do it? What do we need to do? Well, we'll conclude with that today. Problem number two is this, the problem with tragedies. So let's look at our text. Verse 1 of chapter 13 says this, There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. This is always lovely stuff, right? You go back into, it's almost like the Old Testament, right? Where they were sacrificing animals. How barbaric weird was that? You know, in our day and age today, it's like, hmm, well, it was obviously a foreshadowing of the sacrifice of an innocent lamb, Jesus Christ. And so these were important things that were going on. So Luke informs us that, as we see here, that this is directly linked to the previous passage with the words, at that very time. And that's important because, again, as we've been going through this Gospel of Luke, Luke is not doing everything chronologically. He's trying to lay out a case for his good friend Theophilus so that he may have certainty about his faith in Jesus Christ. But at this point, he wants us to know these words of Jesus follow right on after. So the context is really important. They've just heard Jesus preaching and teaching for at least probably a few hours in the sermon that begins at the beginning of chapter 12. And this is what they've got on their mind. After hearing all the amazing things he's had to say, what they've got on their mind is something like this. Uh, Oh, so you you don't think we're not aware of the signs of the times or we're not judging things correctly and and we're judging things wrongly? Well, how about this? And so they remind Jesus about this event that did take place where... Pilate had sent some soldiers into the temple where the priests were doing the sacrifices of of animals, which they would be doing, and Galileans, where Jesus' disciples, most of them were from, by the way, uh, are there, and they're also offering their, uh, their, their sacrifices, and Pilate butchers them all. He butchers the Galileans, not the Jewish priests and others from Jerusalem are there, but the Galileans, he butchers them all, and their blood is mingled with the others who are there. And so this is, a, this is a very interesting point in this passage, and it's interesting because of this. So they, they tell Jesus that Jesus is, they remind him about this event that had taken place that it, in, in the temple. And so what's their point to Jesus? What is Jesus supposed to take from this? Well, he tells us in the very next two verses. Jesus answered them and said this, Do you think, do you think, that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this tragedy, that they suffered in this way? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise So here's what's going on. The thinking in that day of almost all faithful Jews, really faithful religious Jews, was pretty simple. Uh, They basically thought this, if a a tragedy like an airplane crash or 9-11 or any one of these tragedies that we're looking at this morning happened to people, they had it coming. They had it coming because of their sin. And, and it might not be sin that was publicly or outwardly known. It was private sin, right? Like, we didn't even know. 
that they were that bad, that God judged them as this way. And so there was always this view that if something horrible like that happened, you came to a sudden death like that, it was God's judgment on you. That was their point, and that's what they believed. But there was another thing going on here. These Jews in the temple, the Jewish Jerusalem Jews, also saw Galileans as inferior Jews. And why would that be the case? Well, <laughs> they were from the downtown east side, or maybe Surrey. Okay, I'm sorry I said that on Facebook Live, but you know, you know what I mean? They were from a part of the world where people were like, you know, I shouldn't have said Surrey, should I? <laughs> Love you, Surrey. <laughs> I really do. And I mean, come on, we all have those prejudices, right? They did. These people were inferior Jews. And so, obviously, if it's going to happen to someone, it's going to happen to people like that. Same thing can happen today, right? Some people believe in what? Karma. What goes around comes around, right? If you do bad things, bad things will happen to you. That's a belief that people have today. But it goes much deeper than that. Much deeper than that, even to this day. You, you practice or hold the wrong religion or beliefs, and well, when tragedy falls on your head, the one true God that I believe in will do that to you. Well, that can cut both ways, right? You can be of any religion and see that happening to people of another religion going, well, there you go. They just don't have the one true God, and that's why that is happening to them. Also embedded in their attitude was this racial prejudice, which, of course, no one possibly today could be guilty of, right? We've evolved. 2,000 years, right? Have we? Not in the slightest. So now look at the way Jesus answers. It's very telling in the way that he answers, because I love the first three words. Do you think? <laughs> really? Do you think? He's already told them that despite using their minds, human minds that have been gifted to us by God, their intellects, they've failed to read the signs of the times, and they're rather poor judges of themselves and others, and he asks somewhat rhetorically, possibly even a little sarcastically, oh, Jesus could be sarcastic? Got him killed, I think. Do you really think, is what he's saying and asking here, that these Galileans were worse sinners than any other Galilean? Let's just start there. Because they suffered such a tragic death? And then he says, no, you thought really wrong. Your thinking's messed up. Think on this instead. Unless you repent, you will all, all likewise perish. So just to emphasize his point, Jesus then goes on and says this. How about those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them? Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So Jesus, first of all, is saying, listen, you remember a tragedy? I remember one. You got one, I got one. And it's specific, right? Luke is a journalist, a doctor, a factician. I know it's a made-up word. It's mine. I'm keeping it, right? 
18. This is the kind of thing that made C.S. Lewis, an atheist, go, what? This isn't some religious writing. This is news. This is factual history. 18. 18 people. I, I suppose you think that they were worse offenders than, listen, all of the rest of you Jews in Jerusalem. So Jesus, in doing this, by adding the second aspect to the story, says to them, guys, I'm widening the birth here. This includes you, all of you. Because here's the thing. This story was well known about this tower falling. Do you think? Twin towers falling? It's kind of well known, right, to this day? In Jerusalem, that tower falling was well known. Those 18 people were brothers and sisters, children of faithful Jews in Jerusalem. They knew who they were, and most of them should have known in their hearts that they were no worse than them. But still, so you, you see what Jesus is doing here, right? You see it, I hope. He's, he's saying, guys, don't, don't look out to the world and say, look, you need to change, and we need to be part of a, a movement that's going to change the world. He's saying, no, no, listen, every moment of every day of your life you need to check your own heart. You need to check your own sin. Because if you do not repent, you too will perish. It's pretty dramatic, isn't it? It's dramatic. Repetition's a big thing. I remember my grade nine teacher, her name was Mrs. Nevin. I remember her for a number of reasons, but maybe the strap was one of them. But one of the reasons was is she kept, she said to me one time, because uh, I was like, you know, I was getting bored with the class because we were doing the same thing over again. And she said, Mr. Davies, repetition, repetition is how we learn. Okay, I just wanted to mention Mrs. Nevin because I loved her really. She was a great teacher. But it's true. And, and it happens in the scripture. When you see repetition in the scripture, we need to pay attention. You'll remember earlier in Luke, we, we saw that uh, Jesus said, truly, truly, Right? In the ESV, in the King James, it's verily, verily. Sounds even more impressive, even though less understandable. Right? And, and actually what he's saying when he starts that verse or that, that passage is he's saying that in the Aramaic, amen, amen. Right? And what was really unusual about that was twofold. He said it twice, but he also said it at the beginning of his statement, and he's the only person, Jewish rabbi, in that day up until that time who had ever done that. Why? Because amen was always added at the end of an assertion, like I will sometimes say uh, something that sounds rather authoritative from the scripture, and I will go amen, and you will all go. Thank you. And uh, right, that's where it should be, right? Jesus starts with it, and he says it twice, and the reason is, is because he spoke with authority. And the very next things that came out of his mouth were going to be true. Write it down. This is true in the same way because he repeats himself in two stories and he makes the point very clear. He wants them to understand exactly what he is saying because this is critical. It's important for everyone to hear. So what I want to do now is I want to focus our attention on four words from our text from these words of Jesus to learn the lessons and what Jesus truly meant when he said, no, I'll go back. No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. 
So let's first look at the two words, all and likewise. I think from what we've seen so far, the point of the word all should be plain to all, right? This is a universal truth that he's talking about here. And so it's about all. Those who brought the story of the tragic death of the Galilean worshipers to Jesus were thinking God's judgment fell on them because of their sins, sins that were far less than theirs. Jesus' response to them and to you and I is no. Their sins are no more egregious than all of yours, all of mine, all of ours. Therefore, in reality, Jesus is saying, if their sins are no worse than your sins or my sins, all of us deserve the same tragic death for our sins. That's how serious it is to God. So then, now please hear this. When we see great tragedies happen in our world today, and we do, we see more and more tragedies in our world today. Why? Because of communications, right? the internet and, and media, we, we, we see it all the time. Tragedies are all around us in our connected world. What should be our thoughts then when we see these things? Should we think that maybe, listen, oh, maybe these people, why are they riding bicycles so fast? And, like, or why are, they, why are they holidaying in that part of the world? Like, why are they hanging out in that neighborhood? Why didn't they think right? Why didn't they, like, not go there? Like, oh, like, well, they're participating in that particular lifestyle or whatever it might be, and oh, the Holy Spirit of God wants you and I to understand this. When you see tragedies that result in people's sudden death, we should be thinking about our own. Because guess what? It's coming. Rather than asking the question, where's God? Which is what we do. Maybe ask, where am I with God? Because our end is coming. And then maybe asking this question, am I ready? The word likewise then tells us this. Those Galileans and those who had the tower fell, fall on them, they were taken by complete surprise. They, they got up in the morning and they didn't expect when they were going through the gate coming into town that this was going to happen. None of the people on 9-11 expected that to happen to those buildings, did they? It was sudden. It was a surprise that this would happen to them. Total, total surprise. Likewise, the day that you and I do die, even if we're sick with a disease for a number of months or even years, it's going to be a surprise. It's going to be a surprise for you and I. None of us has the ability, by the way, to change that day. I remember once asking the question, would you like to know when that day would be? And I remember telling you, I don't. <laughs> what are you going to do? It's, okay, it's going to, Glenn, it's going to be, you know, you're going to be 79, it's going to be March 19th, the day after your birthday, and you're going to get hit by a bus. Don't want to know that but we will not. It is set by God, and it was set for those who died in those tragedies in that day and in every tragedy that happens in our world today. The next word is the hardest word probably in this passage, 
but it mustn't be avoided. It is the word perish. The interesting thing about the word perish in the New Testament is it most often is related to not doing something else. And we've seen it right here twice in this text. It's related to not repenting, which is the word that we'll look at last. And so the idea is if we repent, if we repent no perishing. That's consistent in the New Testament, by the way. We perish if we do not repent. So simply put, it is speaking about, listen, the afterlife. It's speaking to what happens the moment we leave this earthly realm and this earthly existence. It happens when we die, and what is that that happens? Judgment. We all stand before our Creator God, and He's going to have essentially one question for every one of us. What have you done with my son? So perishing goes far beyond the idea of dying to to the position one will find themselves in that day after they die if they have not repented. Now listen, think about this. Can you imagine an existence where all the good that there is in this world today, and there's a lot of good, right? Even though we see a lot of not so good and we would like to see change in our world. Can you imagine living in a place where all of the good is taken away and only evil exists? Leaders who today you do not want to submit to and you shouldn't want to because they are evil are all you've got every day. What would that be called? Hell. Eternally, that is perishing. You all know the uh, most quoted verse in the Bible, right? It's the one that tells us how good God is all the time. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the whole world, all, that He gave His only begotten Son, I will add, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. He loves the whole world, all the world. That is why this verse tells us that He offered a way, the perfect way for all of us to avoid perishing. It cost Him dearly. It cost Him His only Son. It cost Jesus His life. Jesus gave His life so you could have His life. He gave it in your place. We don't have to perish. We can live. We can live. All of our sins can be forgiven. So this word repent is is actually beautiful. (laughs) It is the beautiful word here. This word repent comes from the Greek word metanoia. Metanoia is two words put together. One is meta. It means change. Noia means mind. We get uh, words, English, I guess, words like morphosis from this very idea. A, A caterpillar morphs into a butterfly. That's a big change, isn't it? That's a huge metaphorical picture of a change. So the process, for example, of the butterfly is similar to what God is offering to us through repentance is, but it requires this. It requires something really, really important. And this is our point number three, Jesus changed everything. 
it requires a change of mind. It requires a change of mind. So I want you to hear these repeated words of Jesus this way. His repetition should not be taken as a threat. Preachers have preached it as a threat before. I hope I'm not doing that because it should never be taken that way. I want you, I want you to hear these words from Jesus where, where he's almost starting off like this. I am pleading with you. I'm pleading with you. Have a change of mind about me, about who I am, about what I have done for you. Change your mind. For the atheists, the agnostic, the nuns, all of you, have a change of mind. And listen, do it today. Don't hesitate. Don't wait. It would be a tragedy in Jesus' mind, in God's mind, if any person, any person, it would be the worst of tragedies that any one of us have experienced, if one, if one would perish... That's how God feels about it. His heart is broken when one perishes, let alone a thousand. Just one, and that one is you or me. So there's a really beautiful thing that we need to hear about this that'll happen immediately after you have this change of mind. Here's what's going to happen. Not only will you change your mind about who Jesus is and what he's done, but immediately what'll happen is you will have a change of mind of who you really are. And you'll no longer see yourself as this person who's been doing pretty good, who's been making outward surface changes for your life. No, you will see yourself for the sinner, the rebel against God that you truly are, that I truly am. And that will change everything. It will change everything in your life. So finally, let's be sure we understand this. For you and I to have that change, that change of mind, here's the cool thing, but it's an important thing. You can't even do that. I, I, I can't have that change of mind. I can't muster that on my, myself. You can't. Only the Holy Spirit of God, through the spoken word, through the word of God being preached or being read or being heard or being preached over, heard over, read over, can change you. And so please, hear me carefully here today. If the Holy Spirit is telling you to have a change of mind, listen to Him. Repent. Turn to Him today. Do not delay. Here's what's going to happen if you do that, what you can expect. Jesus, through the power of the Holy Spirit, will begin the work of changing you into this new person that he wants to give to you, this life that he wants to give you, the truly alive person you were created to be. These changes will change everything that you will love. They will change your affections into the things that Jesus is actually concerned about and affectionate towards. It might surprise you that they're different than yours. And what that'll ultimately do is change not only who you are, but it'll change what you do. Your actions will change. And you're going to get surprised because you're going to start doing things that are about the kingdom of God rather than the kingdom of Glenn or the kingdom of self. So the truth is this. 
Jesus changes everything. He did the moment he arrived. I mean, think about it. He took a ragtag group of 120 fishermen, tax collectors, ex-prostitutes, people like us, <laughs> just broken people, and he changed the world forever. He changed the world forever. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, these people went and proclaimed Him. The church exploded all over the world. It is being built, and the greatest change agent in the world is the church. Listen, if the church is being the true church. I want to leave you with a quote uh, from an author of probably one of the best books I have ever read, certainly in the last 10 years, which it came out in the last 10 years. Uh, it's a book written on research and literature on Christianity, culture, and politics. <laughs> Rather timely book. The book's title is kind of long, but it is this. To Change the World, The Irony, Tragedy, and Possibility of Christianity in the Late Modern World. Just remember to change the world. <laughs> it's written by a man by the name of James Davison Hunter. And near the end of his book, I'm paraphrasing it a little bit, but he said this basically. Can we change the world? Question? Well, who knows? Probably not. But we can perhaps, just perhaps, make it a little better by what? Social justice? Joining causes? They're good things. No, he says this by living godly lives, changed lives as aliens and strangers in this world today. Friends, I want to leave you with a couple of questions to take from here today and maybe take into community group this week. Number one, question. Has Jesus changed who you are yet? Has he? You need to pray and ask him to change you and to forgive you and to receive you as a son or daughter today. Please do not delay. Secondly, Christian, with your brothers and sisters in Christ that you trust in community, let's talk about this week the changes that the Holy Spirit is putting on our hearts today, this week, next week, that need to change. And then you know what? Let's help each other. Pray with me, would you? Gracious Heavenly Father.